So it's New Year's Eve. Tomorrow will be a new year. And so I wanted to talk about something very significant for me personally, but also significant in Buddhist practice that maybe is worth considering in the transition from one year to the next, transition to something, a new, a new life that will come. And it's something that is maybe almost as significant in Buddhism as awakening. Awakening, liberation, enlightenment gets a lot of press as being important. People often fo focus on that a lot in some way or other. And there's something that may be much more significant for many people, but, uh, or maybe as significant, something that can be as transformative for them. It involves as much a change of heart, change of mind. And in some ways it is maybe humbler than awakening. Awakening doesn't need to be humble, but maybe beautiful humility that's going to be involved in it. And tremendous power also in this. And that is uh, going for refuge. Down to the, through the centuries, many Buddhists have done gone for refuge. It's a very common Buddhist ritual. And many times, in many places, it's done kind of out of habit almost. It's not a custom and doesn't have that much meaning for people. But it's also something that involves a very, can involve a very deep transformation of people. Is the speaker ringing? I think, Robert, before you go, we need to kind of adjust. Maybe I'll try um, a different... See how that is. Is that better? Can you hear? I don't hear the ringing now. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> so it's often been refuge is done as a customary thing, without much thought even. But it also it's been under it's recognized and experienced by many people down through the centuries as something that's uh, can in a beautiful way, can turn your life upside down. A radical turning and shaping and reorientation of a person's life. A, a, kind, of a, a kind of a wholehearted placing one's life or orienting one's life around the deepest values that a person has. Deepest understanding of truth that a person has. And for some people, it, uh, depending on how their life is before going for refuge, it could be a revolutionary turn to go in a different direction. And in thinking about refuge today, um, I think it's worthwhile considering about how the things that people often take refuge in, which don't really provide 
a stable peace. Doesn't really don't provide real safety for people. Don't provide really lasting happiness. And so it's easy to point to things that you know some people take refuge in money. Some people take refuge in their jobs. Some people take refuge in homes, spouses, relationships, children. Some people take refuge in their political parties, the IRAs. Some people take refuge in their community, their tribe. Some people take refuge in their beliefs and they hold to them really tight. But even deeper than that, all those things, there's a kind of, it's almost as if people, you, we, we, we take refuge and sometimes deep, deep in our psyche that kind of creates the texture and flavor of consciousness itself. That uh, it's this, the, what Buddhism calls consciousness or citta or mind is not a fixed thing, it's a process that's influenced by many things. And so if, the, if you're filled with greed, then that consciousness then is flavored by greed. And we know that if there's your, you know, you can have, you can have a strong desire and you see, only see the object of your desire out there. You have strong hate and everything seems hateful. But if you, if, you, if you really quiet or look really back, back, back into the texture of how you're aware of awareness itself, the knowingness of the mind itself, not so much the objects of knowing, but even like how you know, you sometimes find uh, there are attitudes there, understandings, beliefs that are operating there, that maybe you normally wouldn't say, I take refuge in those things, but it sure looks like we're depending on them that we relate to them like, this is really, this is really important news. This is really important. This is significant, valuable. This is the, this is the truth. The truth that I am inadequate. It's a sense of inadequacy back there. A sense that there's a, constantly a threat. Something terrible is about to happen. And it can, there's consciousness way back there. So usually we're so busy taking care of things in life, we don't see the flavor of consciousness. But in the background, there's this attitude. Or this attitude of the grass is greener somewhere else. It can't be good here. It has to be somewhere else. So I have to practice hard. I have to do something. I always have to do. So consciousness has this flavor of doing, of getting, of wanting. There can be um, attitudes of conceit that are there. It can be very subtle of identification. The consciousness has, is entangled in a sense of uh, belief that I am this, whatever it, this is. And, but those, all those, and we in a sense take refuge in those. We, we believe in those things. We believe in our fear. We believe in our hate. We believe in our beliefs. And we relate, we see the world through them. We relate to them. And one of the very powerful things to do in mindfulness practice is to look back at the consciousness that knows 
your breath as you breathe. The consciousness that knows your sensations in the body as you know them. The consciousness that knows the sounds as you hear them. The awareness that knows that you're thinking. And, and feel and sense, where is that, what's that consciousness about? What's it concerned with? What's the flavor, the texture, what's the quality? Is it contracted or tight? Is it pushing or wanting? Is it holding back? Is it bracing itself? Is it contracted or pulled in on itself? Is it open and expansive? Is there contentment? Is there ease? Is there a sense of peacefulness there? How is it in that flavor? So in a sense, people take refuge or they believe in or depend on some things that are not very helpful. People depend on their fears, depend on their anxieties, depend on their conceits, depend on their desires, depend on all these kind of strange ideas we have about what has to happen. And it has this deep, deep impact on consciousness. <coughs> to take refuge, to, is to, or to begin, begin taking refuge, is to be interested in shaping consciousness in a very different way shaping our heart in a different way, so that, what, so that what, our, the, what our heart, what our consciousness, our mind, the flavor and texture of it, is, is depending on something which is worth depending on. Depending on something which can provide a stable peace. Depending on something which is dependable. Depending on something which can protect us, support us, help us, inspire us, and even liberate us. And so there, there are times, maybe, in, maybe once in a person's life, someone where you, some people get, they finally get what the refuges are. Oh, maybe because it, finally it resonates with something we see in ourselves. And it isn't that the refuges are something external. They are that as well. The tradition talks about external refuge and internal refuge. There's the external refuge, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, something external. They say that's when you can be, call yourself a Buddhist, which, which you don't have to do. But when you take refuge in these qualities, the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, that's within us, that's when you, someone can say that you become a Buddha, or you become you, uh, you're being Buddhist as opposed to being a Buddhist. You're being a Buddhist when the qualities of truthfulness, the qualities of attention, the qualities of compassion, qualities of peace, wisdom, come from you. And so to take refuge is also to take refuge in something very profound in you that's available to you, that's here. And there's this wonderful intermixture inter, 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 between the external and the internal refuge. And to have a sense, to, to finally get, oh, aha, wow, that's possible. I feel, I sense, I intuit that it's possible to change the very foundation of consciousness itself. So consciousness is no longer causing trouble or is not entangled with trouble with these subtle movements of desire and wanting and resisting and rejecting and 
you know, all the different beliefs that we get entangled with. And the possibility of consciousness, of awareness, the heart being, for me, what's very meaningful is this idea of being at peace, deeply at peace. Someone else, it might be that the heart becomes transparent or luminous or boundless or something. So to take refuge and to kind of, to, at the moment, I say, yes, that's what I want. That's what I'm orienting myself up to. That's what I'm committing myself to. And so we say in the refuge ceremony, we, the expression is, buddham saranam gachami, gachami. Gachami uh, obviously, I mean, uh, most literally means to walk. To, to walk, but it also means to like from walking because that's what they mostly did then. It means to go and um, to go for refuge. But I like the idea of walking because walking is something you do with your, all of who you are. You don't leave your like you know your arms behind or your legs behind when you walk. You kind of bring all of yourself into it. And I think that's the opportunity, possibility of real refuge is to some, it's something where you bring all of yourself along. So yes, all of me is going to be part of this. I'm not going to hold back. But gachami also has a, a, a secondary meaning, or at least the tradition talks about a secondary meaning. It also means to know. And it's not simply a matter of going, it's also a matter of knowing something. That to go to refuge is to know something for yourself. To know the truth to know the possibility, to know the, 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 at least the, 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 the intuition that there is a different way of living. There's a way of living that we're, we're, that we're not struggling, not fighting, not defending and resisting and closed down. Uh, there's a way of life where the deep, where the deep abiding sense of well-being, of love, of compassion, of peace, that can be stable and present and radiate. So to know. Some people resist the idea of refuge, going for refuge, because it's, it seems like well, that's the religious part of Buddhism. You know, who wants that, you know? It's, it's, you know, I just want... I'm, I'm way beyond that. That's just kind of a the opiate for the masses kind of thing. I don't know what religious means, but I do know what it's like to bring your whole heart into something, be wholehearted. I do know what it's like to bring all of yourself into something, to be really committed. And so part of the, the, the idea of going, of being, of going, the gachami, means it's a willful act. It's a choice a person makes. It isn't like we're waiting for lightning to strike so we can have refuge. It's a choice. This is a choice. I'm making a choice here, a willful choice, to orient my life in a particular way and not another way. So, for example, it might be something simple, like I now orient my life to being very careful with my speech so that my speech is honest. From now on, I would like to have honest speech in part of my life, not be deceptive or hedge my, you know, what I say. 
or it could be that from now on, what's really important for me is, is, um, is not to harm. I don't want to cause any harm anymore. And so there's a choice made. I, maybe I can't do it well, but there's a choice made. I'm not going to try my best to commit myself to no longer harming any living being. So and so, there's, you know, you can fill in the blanks. There's many things we can decide. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to live anymore spending all my hours watching television. Shrinking up like a prune. I'm going to go to Spirit Rock where they'll water me, and it'll look like those wonderful prunes at breakfast. I love coming to Spirit Rock. It's the only place I have prunes every morning. <laughs> and I'm usually a little bit disappointed when I get there and, and all the juice is gone. I like to get that prune juice out. So for those of you who are shriveled up, we have the right juice here at Spirit Rock called mindfulness. And um, and it's a difficult thing to make sometimes to make a radical commitment to some other way of life when there's strong strong addictions that we have in our life or strong fears that keep us locked in or seemingly big threats in our life around us that we don't understand or which make it difficult to want to change. But you've all chosen to come to a Buddhist retreat center. And Buddhism is pointing to a radical potential possibility. And we would be doing you a disservice if we didn't, from time to time, hold that out as a possibility, a potential, that, that you could tur- turn your life around in a very deep way that is meaningful for you. Not because someone else tells you, but you can develop a sensitivity, the awareness, the connectedness, the wisdom, the insight to see a possibility. And then, will you have the courage to follow through? Will you have the courage to, t- to move in that direction? And often that's why people you know, state their intentions on New Year's Eve. Not so much for courage, but because it's hard to get behind an intention and live it. And so we have this little ritual that we make where we write down an intention and uh, you know, hope that somehow that ritual will support us to live that way more in our life. And this going for refuge, this commitment, or this, um, it can be a, it can be a passionate thing. We might talk here about you know allowing, accepting, being soft, allowing things, and it might seem because of that you're not allowed to be passionate about anything, 
But you can be passionate about practice. You can be passionate about showing up and accept things. <laughs> this is what I want to do more than anything. Get me to Spirit Rock so I can sit there and accept things. I'm not going to, nothing's going to stop me. <laughs> so for me, you know, you know I, I, in many times in my life, I, mean, I, I put my, I put my, my life in the hands of the Buddha, I put my life in the, my life literally in, into the Dharma, come what may. That, that's where my passion was, that's what I had to do. That's what, and so I gave up a lot. The second time I went to practice in Asia, it was really with a sense that um, this was it. I did have a return ticket, but that was incidental. But it was like, I was going for the long term. I was going. There was nothing else. That's what I was going to do. There was a strong, strong drive that I have no regrets having. I don't feel it was wrong to have. It was, yes, yes, I'm going to do this. And I've found that the more we give ourselves to the Dharma, Later I'll talk about what the Dharma is, but the more we give ourselves to the Dharma, the more the Dharma responds to that giving. The more the Dharma supports us, helps us out. And I have one little story that maybe is a little bit superstitious, but to me, kind of in my life, kind of represents that kind of support from the Dharma. First time I went to practice in Asia, I went to Japan to study Zen. I was a Zen priest. And so I practiced here in ordained here in California and practiced here. And then I went to Japan to practice there. And when I got there, um, I had about $200. It's all the money I had in the world. So, you know, show up in a new country, new place, hardly knew anybody there, $200. And um, so the rational part of my mind kicked in and said, Gil, you know, look how much, you don't have much money. You know, you've got to somehow get by here in this country. It's not cheap here. So the thing to do is to get a job. So back then, it was easy to get jobs teaching English. And so within a few days, I'd set up some gigs to teach English as a second, you know, to the Japanese. And, um, but there were, there, I had like a, a week or something before the first job was going to start. So, you know, what does a Zen priest do in Japan with a free week? <laughs> I went to a session. And so I went to this, did a Zen retreat. And I think the last day or so, last, you know, it was coming near the end, so it kind of, kind of maybe, come, in fact, it was coming to an end, kind of was a catalyst, kind of put some pressure on me. I started thinking, what am I, I started thinking, what am I doing? I did not come to Japan to teach English. I came all this way. I'm a Zen priest. I've ordained. This is what I'm, my life is about. I came to Japan to practice. Come what may, I'm going to take my chances with the Dharma. I'm going to go back to Kyoto and throw myself in with my $200 and just find my way, just do the Dharma thing. And I spent a year doing that. And for a while, I was traveling around looking for um, a place. I, I was called a Ronin monk. That's a kind of, was a technical name. Ronin is a, a samurai, doesn't have a master. 
because I'd lost my Zen teacher that I had who ordained me. So I would go look for other places to practice. And so there was a, it turned out there was a custom in Japan that when there's a Ronin monk who travels around, and if the, he's not going to stay at that temple you're at, the abbot will give him uh, train money. <laughs> I didn't know about this. <laughs> and uh, so, the, 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 so this one monastery, the monastery I decided I was going to give myself to the Dharma and come with me. I had my exit interview with the abbot, and um, I explained who I was. He hadn't had a chance before that, who I was, what was going on. And, and I was in Japan looking for a teacher and a place to practice. And, and I thanked him for the retreat, and I gave him, an, I gave him an envelope with my dana, with my offering to the temple, to him. And then we talked for a while, and he understood I was a ronin monk. And he said, just a minute, he said. And he went back to the back room and came out with an envelope and handed it to me. And I left with the envelope and opened it, and he gave me more money I'd given him. <laughs> and so how, in the end, I left Japan with more money than I came with. I mean, it wasn't a lot more money, it was $50 more. <laughs> so I came with 200 I left with 250 That was a good return. <laughs> good return on the Dharma, Dharma interest. <laughs> so a little, exa- you know, so, you, so, you know, it's, I don't know if it always works that way, but it kind of represents for me this idea that you tr- tr- entrust yourself to the Dharma and somehow the Dharma supports you. You give yourself over, and there's been times in my life where giving myself to the Dharma and practicing has been really tough. And sometimes I felt like I'm up against a wall. I just couldn't go further, couldn't go further. Really hard, really hard, really hard. And I just didn't give up. I just kept trying and didn't understand what was going on and tried. And then, as far as I can, you know, the best way I can describe it is that the, the Dharma opened for me. The Dharma moved through me in a powerful way. Not necessarily a conventionally happy way. It wasn't like I got enlightened or something. But the truth came through me. And that's what had to happen. And the wall was the wall of not facing the truth. And it was you know, certainly humbling at times and You know, it kind of tore the foundations off some of my beliefs and my sense of self. But, but the consequence was I have so much reverence, so much awe. Awe is a good word. Awe for the power of the Dharma. And so I take refuge in the Dharma. I, I, to me, that's really a meaningful thing. I feel like it protects. It's a tremendous protection to take refuge in the truth, which is one of the synonyms for the Dharma. To fall back on that over and over again. So the Dharma, 
So take refuge in the Dharma. Now taking refuge, I said earlier about the passionate pursuit of the Dharma. You know, there's, there's two sides. And both are needed. So I want to read a story. There was once a monk who was known for his relaxed and trusting nature. No matter what was happening, the monk would smile. If circumstances were challenging, he would say, if we can accept how things are and keep a positive attitude, everything we need will unfold on its own. Just trust the Dharma. Sounds good, right? Once, when the monk was on a month-long retreat in a hermitage deep in the forest, he witnessed a remarkable interaction between a deer and a tiger. The deer, injured, came stumbling into the clearing in front of the hermitage. Some time later, a tiger wandered into the clearing and saw the wounded deer. The monk held his breath, convinced that the tiger would surely kill and eat the deer. The, tig- the deer, too, was clearly worried. <laughs> but as it could no longer walk, the deer accepted its fate, lying very still in the grass. To the monk's surprise, the tiger spent the next few days standing guard over the deer until the deer was well enough to wander off again on its own. The monk was elated at this sight, as it seemed to validate his idea that that if we could only accept whatever happens fully enough, the boundless goodness of the universe would take care of us. A few days later, lightning struck a neighboring hermitage only a hundred feet away. At first, the roof smoldered and smoked. The monk accepted this. The roof then caught on fire. The monk accepted this. Then the rest of the hut started burning. The monk accepted this too. Soon the entire hermitage was gone and the the nun who lived there was slightly injured from attempting to battle the flames. When the abbess came to investigate the fire, she asked the monk why he didn't go and help put out the fire. In reply, the monk told the story of the tiger and the deer and how it had taught him the importance of surrendering and accepting things in the way the deer had done. You fool, said the abbess. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly there are times when you should be like the deer. But if you are to be a spiritually mature person, you should also know when to be like the tiger. With that, the abbess sent the monk away. Don't come back until you know how to be a tiger. Only when you accept this part of yourself can you understand what it means to accept things how they are, to accept how things are. So, can you be a tiger? Or are you just going to be a deer? Sometimes you're a deer and sometimes you're a tiger. But part of you, you have to accept. So to be mindful, to show up for yourself and be present and be sensitive, find out what's here. Sometimes you'll find tremendous, I hope, maybe 
passionate action, commitment, drive for something beautiful, something appropriate, healthy. And sometimes you'll find maybe as much courage or strength, but you'll find a tremendous beauty, beauty and peace from just letting go and accepting. And hopefully you'll know the difference of when different ones are required, different ways of being. When I finally got my visa, visa to go get into Burma, it took me a long time to get to go to Burma to practice there. I was really set to go. I think it took a long time, it took nine months to get the visa. And I finally got the visa in Bangkok. And I left the embassy, the Burmese embassy, and started kind of skipping down the Bangkok streets, singing, you can get it if you really want. <laughs> you can get it if you really try, but you have to try, try, and try. Right? Isn't it something like that, the song? <laughs> so this idea, you know, of committing, of doing, of engaging. And the Dharma will support you. <clears throat> Will, re- will respond. And it isn't like this Dharma is this external thing out there, mysterious, external, superstitious thing. The Dharma is you. In Theravada Buddhism, we have a, a, a fourth refuge. There's the, the usual three, which is Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. But the fourth refuge is yourself. Take refuge in yourself. So near the end of the Buddha's life, in the last days of his life, he said this. You should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge with no one else as your refuge. So that's the first half of what he said here. So be a refuge unto yourself. Rely on yourself. Find a refuge here with no other refuge. No one else as your refuge. No one else means no other person as a refuge. And one of the uh, very important movements in this tradition, our tradition, is the idea of uh, no longer depending on other people or becoming independent in the Dharma. Independent Dharma means that you know for yourself. You don't have to depend on someone else. It means that uh, your venerable teachers up here are doing their best to talk themselves out of a job. So uh, you should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge. With the Dharma as an island, with the Dharma as your refuge, with no other refuge. So here... What's happening here is the Buddha is treating yourself and the Dharma as synonyms. Saying the same thing twice. You're the Dharma, or you can be the Dharma. The Dharmas can be found in you. Not in your greed, hate, and delusion. But the Dharma can be found in your truthfulness, in your generosity, in your open-heartedness, in your commitment to truth. But the essence of what Dharma is, 
you know, Dharma can mean many different things, but probably the most important thing, the heart of what Dharma is in this whole enterprise of Buddhism, is Dharma is non-harming. Dharma is to not harm. Dharma is, is characterized, the tradition says the Dharma is characterized by non-harming. And when we take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in non-harming. Not in some abstract, mysterious idea of external Dharma out there, but something non-harming can only be something that people do, that only your heart can do. To take refuge in the Dharma is to take refuge in non-harming. And a whole way of, uh, you know, way that's crystallized or, or, or expressed in Buddhism is through the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths are all about a life of non-harming. Where we don't cause harm to ourselves or to others. Most often we think of the Four Noble Truths something about not causing harm to ourselves. But what a remarkable thing. It's one of those things that I'm in complete awe of, ready to bow down to, is a mind, a heart, that is not, that is centered or stabilized in non-harming. What a gift to the world. What a phenomenal thing in a world where there's so much harm that happens. People harm each other all the time. It's so easy to see it. But wow, to train oneself, to transform oneself, to even not to be transformed, but, but, but to be committed to a life that doesn't cause harm. That's the essence of the, of the Dharma. And the path of Dharma is found in those steps it takes to not cause harm. And so we say the second noble truth is a truth of, of craving, that craving produces suffering. It's saying that craving in all its manifestation is what causes harm. And when we say that it's possible to have cessation, for third noble truth, it's saying that it's possible to end the harm. And that's the great news. And if we're not being harmed, if we don't harm ourselves, if we don't harm ourselves, what can harm us? What can really harm us? And this is like a koan. This is a tremendously challenging aspect of Buddhism that is not supposed to be easily understood, but you're supposed to take up the challenge and question and look more deeply. If you don't harm yourself, who can harm you? Can anybody really harm you? I love the fact that the word integrity in Latin root of it means literally means apparently can't be touched. Maybe our integrity is something that can't be touched by anybody unless we touch it. It's like the Buddha, when the angry man came to the Buddha and was cursing the Buddha, the Buddha looked at him calmly and said, if someone comes to your house and offers you a gift, but you don't receive the gift, who does, who does the gift uh, belong to then? So the angry man said, well, then it stays 
stays with me. And Buddha said, I don't accept your curses and your anger, so it stays with you. We harm ourselves when we're angry at someone else, even if it's justified. What's it like? And then if someone is angry with us, I've, I've had experience of being ang- have people angry at me. And if I'm very attentive, I can see how my mind reacts to that, picks it up, contracts, gets afraid. There's all this movement inside of me. And it's the movement inside of me that's really causing my harm, not the anger. Because I've had people angry at me. I had this wonderful, uh, I love this story. Some of you heard it. I was, on ret- I was teaching retreat with John at, at Vajrapani many years ago. And um, I'd set up an interview with someone. I think it was like a special interview outside of the regular schedule or something. And um, uh, I was preparing my Dharma talk. That was a talk that evening. So I forgot. So as soon as I realized I'd forgotten, I went to find her. Now, you know, I didn't think, I didn't think it was too big of a deal. I mean, after all, I mean, what happens on retreat? Sitting, walking, sitting, walking. <laughs> you know, I didn't think you had, you know, really that important places to go or do or, you know. You know, but I, I, I went and looked for her. I was going to apologize and see if I could make amends and set up another time and all that. But she was ballistic. It was like, you know. So I said, okay, let's, I said, okay, I guess we need to sit down and talk about this. <laughs> So I, we went to a cabin and sat down. We, I sat like this, you know, cross-legged, across from her. And, um, and for the next hour, she just let me have it with tremendous ferocity and anger. It was quite something, like a force of nature. And I just got more and more interested. <laughs> And how long a person could have a monologue? Because <laughs> that's what it was, just a monologue. I didn't say anything. I just <laughs> and it was a great exercise in just letting anger just go right through. You know, it didn't stick anywhere, just, just anger. <laughs> and, you know, an hour. It was quite a, quite a time. But it lasted an hour. And then uh, the supper bell rang. <laughs> and, and there's a saying in Buddhism, uh, maybe probably some of you have appreciate it. Um, Saved by the bell. (laughs) So then I said, oh, that means I have to go. I said, excuse me. (laughs) So that was my excuse to leave. And the even more amazing thing, I was pretty amazing. I I was kind of fascinated by that. And I tell you now just that it's possible to be the recipient of anger, ferocious anger, and not have it, not suffer because of it. And it's possible to do all this inner gymnastics around it that causes a lot of suffering. The amazing thing about the story, the really amazing thing, is the next day she came to me and said, Gil, thank you so much. <laughs> um, uh, everyone else has always been afraid of my anger and they run away. And I think it was, it was really meaningful for her that I didn't go away, I stayed. So I tell you that story, part of this idea of challenging you, or telling you about the Buddhist challenge, of understanding where is really the harm, when we're harmed, where's really the source of that harm? There are conditions for the harm, 
but what gets into the heart, your heart? What really gets in deep inside? And the teaching of Buddhism is that you're, the, you're responsible for your heart. So what do you do? It's a very hard teaching because it's so hard to see. It's so hard to see sometimes what we do in the fabric of consciousness, the texture of it, what in the background of it. And that's why coming back to that attitude that's behind it all, sometimes it's very helpful. So the Dharma, to take refuge in the Dharma, is to take refuge in the possibility of living a life that doesn't harm. That's, that also is a life which has peace, a peaceful heart, or a friendly heart, or a generous heart, or a loving heart, or a wise heart. There's many kind of attributes that come along, but at the essence, the heart of it is non-harming. So if you thought that taking refuge is too religious, what do you think now? If that's, if that's the heart of it, non-harming. And is it okay to live a life of non-harming? Is it safe? Is it appropriate? And that's the challenge. And some people decide that maybe, they, you know, that they don't, you know, that's something I want to move towards that. I want to live more that way. And some people make much more of an absolute commitment. Yes, this is how I'm going to live my life, come what may. So to take refuge in the Dharma is to take refuge in non-harming. To take refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in that heart and that mind that really has experienced the peace, the bliss of non-harming, of not having harm there, where where harm's been uprooted. And it's, it's, you know, to have, to have a sense, intuition, a feeling for the uprooting of conflict, the uprooting of fear, the uprooting of hate, the uprooting of all the different tensions and pressures and strains that we have in our heart. To have a sense of it, a feeling for it, an intuition of it, and see the possibility that this is a, possible to grow and develop in that direction is to take refuge in the Buddha. It's possible. It's possible. One of the analogies that I like for... So the Buddha... I don't know if the Buddha ever existed, you know. It doesn't really matter that much to me. What matters the most is the Buddha represents a potential that we all have. So this is another analogy that I like. I used to teach in a community-centered kind of auditorium that had this linoleum floor that was... We'd show up Sunday morning to teach, and sometimes they had a community center had these parties Saturday night, <laughs> and there was beer all over, you know spilled on the floor and real sticky, and we'd walk across you know and we'd leave our shoes outside and you know walk into into sticky and it's like you know it's like there's a mess and potato chips and stuff and and there was this linoleum floor it had little one one foot square linoleum pieces, and um, so I thought well what if no one ever cleaned the floor. Maybe for 500 years. And I thought, well, probably with the dust and beer and stuff, vomit would kind of build and build, and people would dance and walk on it and get caked in, and, and you know, it gets hardened, hardened, hardened over those centuries. And then, you know, maybe it'd be like feet, many feet deep after a while. And, um, and everyone had long since forgotten there was a linoleum, shiny, beautiful floor at the bottom. And uh, then one day, 
500 years in the future, some person went to the city records and looked at the old plans and said, you know, there's a linoleum floor there. Would come out and tell people, there's a floor down there. Beautiful one. No, you're crazy. There can't be. No one's ever heard of a floor down there. It can't be impossible. It can't, can't be there. And so the person would take a pick and a jackhammer and, you know, it dynamite or whatever it took, you know, and just really work on that floor and work on that floor and kind of scrape away. It would take, you know, a long time. It's just hard work to do this Dharma practice. Get through your vomit and stains. It's just gotten impacted some of this stuff. So it takes a lot of, you know, heavy lifting sometimes. And then finally, the person is able to get down to the floor, is able to clear out one square foot of that linoleum. And then it said, look down there, two, three feet down, the flashlight. Look, you see, there is linoleum floor. So that's pretty significant. But now they know something else that's pretty sure of. And that is, if they could only clear out the rest of it to the wall, the whole floor would be exposed and be clear and clean and beautiful. So it's one thing to have done enough work on yourself to discover, I apologize for this analogy, but you're in the linoleum floor. (laughs) You know, to know that it's there, to clear your square foot or your square centimeter. But now then you know there's so much, there's a potential here. You can spread it out, you can expand out and include the rest of you. And maybe in this lifetime you won't get to the wall. But if you had enough time, you could. And that's what a Buddha is. The Buddha is someone who went to the wall, did the whole thing. And so the Buddha represents that. It's an archetype for that possibility. And I think it's one of the beautiful things in life is to, even if you can't, don't get to the wall, it's a beautiful thing to be doing that work, clearing it out. And so to take refuge in the Buddha is, in part, is to take refuge in this potential of awakening, of freedom that we all have. And, you know, it really doesn't matter so much. I'd say it this way, I don't think it matters so much how far you get in in the work. It just really matters that you do it. The beautiful story of Lou Richmond, who... Zen teacher here in nearby, Mill Valley. He asked his teacher, uh, Suzuki Roshi, back in the 60s, he said, if I do the Zen practice you know, really well and really engage, will I get enlightened? And Suzuki Roshi's answer was, was I think, really profound. Suzuki Roshi said, he didn't say yes or no, <clears throat> but he said, if your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. So it matters that you do it. It's a really profound thing just to know this is the path and to take refuge in it is to realize that it's a valuable thing to do. It's an important thing to do in our life. And to come back to it, be supported by it, to remember it in times of crisis and difficulty, to know that you are supported and, and held and 
guided by these refuges. Take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So, taking refuge involves a commitment, a choice, a willful choice to move towards liberation or toward non-harming or towards the truth. It also involves an understanding that's personal, that's here, it's here, you understand it's here, in this body, in this being, in this heart. It's something we intuit or know for ourselves. You know, one of the, one of the descriptions of the Dharma is ehe pasiko, come and see for yourself. It's available to be seen directly for yourself. And, and the question is, how do you know you see the Dharma? This mysterious Dharma, you know, you know, you can get these big books. This is a big book, right? This is just like one of the big collections of the sutras. You can read them all and maybe I'll understand the Dharma if I really understand, if I memorize the book and cross-reference all the different sutras and all the uses of the word sati. Maybe I'll finally understand what the Dharma is. It's not like that. The Buddha said, if you want to see the Dharma, you see the Dharma when you see clinging and the release of clinging. When you see craving or greed and the release of greed. When you see hate or ill will, aversion and the release of it. When you see delusion and the ending of delusion. That's what we want to know. That's when we see the Dharma. The Dharma's right there. And if you get too much caught up in all the different metaphysical ideas of enlightenment, you might miss the Dharma that's right there to be seen. And the final refuge is the refuge in Sangha. Community. And there's many meanings of that. But I know for me, I could never have practiced without a very wide community of people I practiced with. There's innumerable people I practiced. I never knew their names. <clears throat> I sat with them in silence. And I felt their support. I felt their encouragement. I, you know, I couldn't have done it alone. I couldn't have sat in my room and done it. I needed to have the momentum and the support of people around me. I needed to have my own teachers. to inspire me, to reflect back on me, to encourage me, to challenge me. I couldn't have done it without my teachers. In fact, I wasn't planning on this, but in those little silence I had before I started speaking, it was like this kaleidoscope, quiet, peaceful kaleidoscope spinning, or a little wheel spinning in my head. And all these images of all my teachers arose. I mean, because I was going to talk about refuge, thinking all my teachers I've had. You have Sangha. You've had this week people around you. And to take refuge in it, to depend on it, to be supported by it, to be oriented by it, I think it's a profound thing. So the third aspect of going for refuge, there's three aspects, right? There's the willful part, the choice. There's the knowing that's part of it. And then there's the emotional part that some people call devotion. 
but there's also something about the emotional feeling that goes with it. And different people feel that different ways. But to have the heart moved, inspired, uh, to have the heart rejoice and delighted, to have the heart you know, inspired and opened and you know, to be able to put our heart in it. They say that refuge happens when the Buddha Dharma Sangha is placed in your heart. Actually, the expression in Pali means in the, uh, in the seat of your emotions, which is understood to be the heart. So there can be, at times, a kind of an emotional relationship to all this. It's not a dry thing, the Dharma. It's not like, you know, like just, you know, matter-of-fact dry thing. It's like, I think it's one of the most... You know, it's a deeply emotional. I mean, how can, it has to be because it's all of us. It's a whole of who we are. Love. To love the Dharma. To love, what does it mean to love the Dharma when the Dharma is us? Take refuge in the Dharma, which is you. Not, not you in the conventional sense, not you in your self-identity, and but you in the beauty of your own heart, the beauty of the heart which is not personal. And to have it open. America, <clears throat> American culture for the most part, at least the currents of American culture I've been part of, is not known to be a crying culture. Sometimes you wouldn't know it being here for this week. <laughs> but other cultures cry a lot easier a lot freer. And there are beautiful stories, accounts of uh, great realized people in Asia who cry in the encounter with the Dharma. They're so moved by it. One of the greatest teachers in Thailand right now is a teacher named Mahabua. Still alive. He must be about 100. And there's a little book, one of these free books that goes around, where he describes his own experience of awakening. And while he was giving his talk, they took photographs of him giving the talk. And so those photographs, a whole series of them, are printed in the book together with the talk. And he's crying, remembering his own experience of awakening. It raised a lot of eyebrows in Thailand, but still. So to have our heart in it, the heart open, moved, tenderized, to be supported by the good heart that we have, to be willing to be touched in some deep way, to be opened, to take refuge. And for me, the Sangha is part of that emotional field. And the Sangha, the community, doesn't stop at the walls of the meditation hall. It doesn't stop in the the edges of the Buddhist world itself. The community is the world, all beings. And then the final thing I want to say about refuge. Oh, this was a 45-minute talk, wasn't it? (laughs) Now I see. I kept looking at the clock. Oh, well. See? I won't suffer because of that. <laughs> Will you? You're late for your interview. It's okay.
nowhere to go, nothing to do. If you're suffering because of this, you better take responsibility. I'm not going to do it for you. <laughs> but I'll come to an end now, for sake of bladders and things. So, um, so this idea of you know going for refuge, taking refuge, entering into refuge, opening to refuge, Buddha Dharma Sangha, finding it in ourselves. For me, a very important aspect of this whole refuge thing is offering refuge to others, being someone that people can take refuge in, or being somehow in the world in such a way that the world feels safe with you, feels supported by you, that the, that the world has nothing to fear from you. I think of that as offering, not just going for refuge or taking refuge, but offering refuge in return. And I think that the, the this going for refuge and connecting deeply with truth, with freedom, with the, 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 the deep satisfaction of non-harming, living that way, non-harming, not just in our hearts, but in the, in the subtlest corners of consciousness itself. It helps us become someone who offers refuge, supports others, offers non-harming, offers the gift of fearlessness to the world around us. And that's one of the great hopes I have, that the practice that we do here, that we don't just do it for ourselves. We can't just do it for ourselves. It doesn't work that way. We're really doing it together with all beings, to support all beings. So here we are, New Year's Eve. And we have a ritual in a little while. And part of that ritual will be that you, uh, there'll be some pa paper out there, a little scrap paper that you can take, and write on that paper um, some intention, aspiration, some orientation, some direction that you would like your life to take for this next year. something that's meaningful for you personally. And then uh, you have to bring that in here to the hall for the, uh, we have the sitting at 10.50 in the evening. So that's sitting where it says uh, sit ceremony. So bring your piece of paper at that time in here. And um, we have managed to figure out in the most esoteric of Buddhist traditions, how to take that intention you have and place it in a powerful, powerful fire. <laughs> and that fire will receive your intention and fuel it and spread it and develop it and liberate it and really help make it part of your next year. 
So for those of you who stay up for the fire, And um, so I don't know what to do. I just went on and on here. And <laughs> so um, the schedule says um, you're supposed to be sitting in se- seven minutes. <laughs> so this is what I'd like to ask of you, so that I think it helps. We're here. We're here. To, unless you, unless you're giving up in the evening and going to bed. You're going to stay up, but I'd like to ask you to participate in this so we can do it as a community and kind of hold the container for through the evening. What I'd like to ask is that um, we now have about 15 minutes for walking practice until 9 o'clock. Not very long. And then come back for a short 15-minute sit. I know it's not very long. It can seem unsatisfying. But the Dharma is not found in dissatisfaction. <laughs> the Dharma is found in being at peace with this 15 minute sit. And then we're back on schedule. And then at 9.15, there's the mindful snacking. <laughs> so, thank you very much. Yes? No, why don't you ring it at, at, five, at 5 to 9? So we have five minutes to come in here and start at 9. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.